0: is God's Word. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord. From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hand but he must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? The word of the Lord.
1: come into these seats, into what is a community center and art gallery the rest of the week and a church for an hour on Sunday morning. As we sit in these seats, the stories are, are diverse and our backgrounds and our connections to you are filled with trouble and delight and questions. And as we sit here, despite all the difference between one person and another, and in one way we're all the same, we're more of a mess than we care to admit. But your love comes to us through Jesus. And so the Bible is telling us all the time that even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. We ask now that even as we venture into some of the more troubling parts Of how you have revealed yourself in Scripture, that your grace would shine, that your love and goodness would be revealed to us, and that those of us who call you Lord may do so even with more delight and more fondness, and those of us who wonder about you and have questions might feel that even in our questions, though they remain unanswered sometimes, that you are at least close within them. Meet us now in such a way that our lives might be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The question of the week, last week, was does the Bible make sense? And um, so we got some of your answers. I'll pick that up later. Don't worry. Does the Bible make sense? Somebody says, the big picture, yes, the smaller stories, not always. Somebody else says it often often it makes no human sense. Someone else says this question doesn't make much sense. So by that standard, yes, the Bible does. That's a very postmodern answer, I feel like. <laughs> Just deconstructing the question itself. Someone says, most days of my life, no. Bible doesn't make sense, but recently I've been actually trying to understand it more. Someone else says long story short, yes, sometimes. And so we, we open up this passage today of Job, and there are definitely troubling parts of the passage, and so I, um, I don't know the title was probably up there a minute ago, the title of the message today, Unfortunate Bible Passage Number 41. Um, just to admit right out of the gates that there's troubling things in this passage, such as um, this conversation between God and Satan and the fact that God just sort of, it is a, seems like almost sort of a gamble or a bet that God allows Satan to cause all this problems, all these all this trouble for Job and take everything away. In the first scene, chapter one, which we skipped, his children, all ten of them die. And he loses all his wealth. And then in chapter 2 as we, that we read, then God take, allows Satan to go out and take away his health. So all these questions, all these questions come from that. Too many almost to me. But certainly one of the most troubling ones is that Job's own ten children just seem to get wiped away as sort of collateral damage for this greater cause of, of a, a little conversation between God and Satan. It seems like their lives don't matter. So why is the book of Job here? Why do we need it? One of my mentors um, said something that I'll never forget once. He said, people don't know what they believe until they face a problem they can't fix. Have you had things in your life go terribly wrong and your plans completely upended? The way you thought life was going, the things that brought you joy, the things that you thought were going to be the next chapter of your life taken away from. Has cancer made its way into your life or your extended family and just wreaked havoc on the way life is going? Has abuse made its way into your journey and things can never be the same afterwards? Perhaps a spouse left you out of the blue for no reason it seems. And everything's different from there on out. I once was at a, tr- a retreat, um, a Christian retreat, and somebody came forward with a prayer request about a co-worker and said just a couple weeks ago this co-worker of mine lost all his family in a car accident. His In this one car was his uh, dad, his mom, his wife, and his three kids in, the, in a semi-truck with a tanker behind it, smashed them, caught on fire, and everyone was gone like that. The story of Job is real, and it brings up real questions. What comes up when what you think is the good things that God is giving you in life or the things you expect God to bring you in life? What happens when those are ripped away? How do you react? And so I've got an illustration for this series of Job for this month as we look at these passages. A gumball machine. Because this is an image to expose some of the problems with how we look at our relationship with God. And it is suffering. It is when things go wrong and you need a problem that you can't fix. That the way you expect your relationship with God to work becomes exposed. You find out what you believe. And so a gumball machine is great. Got a quarter. Got a gumball machine. It says it takes 25 cents and so I'm pretty excited. The kids before the service were pretty excited. This gumball machine really works. That was the last one. Oh. Nothing came out. Now what? A gumball machine is great until it doesn't provide you with what you want. In the book of Job, you've got, if you want to put the people into categories, you've got Job's wife, you've got the friends, and then you've got God. Um, or you, you got Job's wife, you got the friends, and then you got Job, and you have God, and, and we're going to go through each person's response one week at a time in that order. And this week we look at Job's wife. So when the gumball doesn't show up in the gumball machine, Job's wife says, "Maybe you saw the heard the words, curse God and die." Her response to the gumball machine is. The gumball's garbage, the gumball machine's garbage, it's makers and owners are, you know, it's pointless, I give up on all of them, peace out, I'm gone, no more gumball machine, that's the wife. Then you have Job's friends come into the story and there's a long dialogue in poetic verse and Job's friends have a different approach towards the gumball machine. They say, Job, certainly you were using counterfeit quarters And that's why it didn't work. You didn't put in the right money. Certainly you didn't turn the crank hard enough. Or maybe you had to hit it on the side when it didn't come out at first. But you didn't do enough. Repent to God of your sin, and God will make your life better again. Surely there's some hidden sin in your life. And then Job's response is this. I'm not going to blame the owners of the gumball machine. I'm not going to even say that I'm at fault. With the gumball machine, with what I've done, I'm not going to say that it's either of those things. I'm, I'm just going. I know that sometimes gumball machines don't provide the gumball. I'm just going to demand that the owner of the gumball machine tell me why. And all three of those answers, once God finally responds, are proved to be insufficient. All three of those responses to a gumball machine relationship with God are faulty. The friends are saying God is punishing you because you're not obedient enough. Job is saying, no, I'm not going to assume that, but I deserve an answer from God. I'm not saying God's wrong. I'm not saying God's unjust in doing this. I just want answers and then I'll be okay. That's what I deserve. But the wife, the wife, that's who we look at today. Her simple response. Curse God and die. Her response is. God is a monster. Plain and simple, God is a monster, and this is an impulse in all of us when the world's not working the way that we want it to or that we see. Recently, there's a um, in the last 20 years, there's been an uptick in a sort of God is the mon- God is a monster kind of philosophy from various authors. One of, one of them, Richard Dawkins, in the book God Delusion, he says this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent, bully. A monster, and I have the evidence to prove it. Charles uh, Templeton wrote this before Richard Dawkins. The God of the Old Testament is utterly like, unlike the God believed by most practicing Christians. His justice is, by modern standards, outrageous. He is biased, querulous, vindictive, and jealous of his prerogatives. God is a monster. What we do, and what these quotes do, is we say, we we take the evidence that I have to look at, we use the lens that I use, and don't be naive to the fact that you bring a culturally conditioned lens to how you judge God's goodness. Take the evidence that I have at hand, I take my culturally conditioned lens, and I look and I say, oh yeah, according to this, God has no defense. God's a monster. And so the modern atheist uh, quotes that I can produce others of, in, in many ways they're being intellectually dishonest. Because they're taking our culturally conditioned 21st century lens and values of morality from today Taking them intact straight out of our time and bringing them 3,000 years earlier to the way that God revealed himself to a people of that time with a whole different set of understandings and values and saying, well, it's obvious. Can't you see this God is a monster? And there's a lot you can do to, um, to understand what was going on with God in much of the Old Testament by just not checking your brain at the door as you dig into Scripture and understanding the culture, the language, the literature of the day. And so there's some dishonesty there, but even if you do all of that, even if you are careful, even if you do all the right interpretation, even if you have a historical mind for how God was maybe good at being revealed in different ways back then, you still have the problem of Job's wife, who sees God in her context, in the way he's revealing to him to, to Job and that day and she says, no, I have the evidence and I, my vote is God is a monster. He's unfair. He's a monster. I mean, she knows of anybody. She's seen Job's blamelessness. She's seen his religious activity. She's seen if anybody has not brought this on himself, it is Job. Surely it's God who's the monster here. But see, here's the thing. When we read Job, we have a privilege that none of the people in the book have. Did you notice that? As the book goes on, maybe you didn't notice because we haven't made it through the whole book, but if you've read the book, you'd see that as you go all the way through and all these people work through how they're going to understand why the gumball didn't come out this time for Job. In fact, it stopped providing. As they try to make sense of it, you'll see they all have their different theories and their ways of dealing with it, but none of them have the privilege you have. We see right at the outset what's really going on. We actually know why this is happening. You may still have problems with it, right? You may say, I don't like that whole conversation in between. I don't like that picture of how God works. Conversation with Satan, and there's going to be this of Job's faith, I don't like that one bit. I don't like that God. And you may have that, and that's, that's good to acknowledge. But notice that as you go through your suffering. You're never going to have the access to the information that you have as you watch Job go through his. And so you're going to find yourself like one of the people in the story having to figure out what you actually believe about God. And in life, are you someone who you want to have answers from the religious leaders that you've seen in this world? You want them to defend their God amidst the atrocities. You want them to defend their God amidst the crusades. You want to them to defend their God amidst tsunamis and the Holocaust, you can try, and they might try, but you're never, you're, you're never going to really get a good answer. They can't. They don't have access to enough information. Or are you a Christian who you're going to try to defend your God against your atheist friends? You can't. You don't have enough information, the book of Job tells us. And surprisingly, I find Job's simplistic rhetorical question of chapter 2, verse 10, quite satisfying and profound when he says to his wife, You are talking like a foolish woman. Should we accept good from God and not trouble? Should we accept good from God and not trouble? I honestly have no idea what Job, what evidence or experiences Job has underneath that statement. I don't know what he's accessing, what truth he's accessing to know or what evidence he has to know that it's possible that with a good God in this world you can have good coming to you and also bad coming to you from that same God and that there's... There's something okay about that, about receiving even the trouble that comes from God? I don't know what Job was accessing to come to that. I'd love to know. But I do know what hope and what what evidence Christians have to access with that same concept. Job's wife said, curse God and die. But when Jesus... When Jesus was on the cross, the curses were being levied at him. And the dying was being done by him. Curse God and die. I know that Christians have even more, have more tangible, sure evidence than Job had, that it's that you can say, I'll accept both good and trouble from, from the hand of God. Because Christians have the picture of God himself dying under the weight of nonsensical violence and evil. Think about that. Jesus sounds an awful lot like Job as Job's story goes on and as he he has a lot of poetry that he's going to enter into and that we're going to read throughout these weeks. Jesus sounds a lot like Job when Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Shouting out at God. Desiring an answer. It's God within Himself voicing almost complaint and request for an answer. What Christians have is we have the fact that God refused to stay at arm's length and aloof and removed from our suffering. And when Satan comes to God the Father and says, Let me at your Son Jesus. The Father gives even more permission to Satan, as it were, than he did with Job. And lets Jesus go all the way to being murdered. So whatever God is up to with your suffering, whatever God is up to with my suffering, we know this, he is is not aloof to it. He is not unfamiliar with it. And in Jesus, Christians have an astonishing picture of the almighty God falling under the weight of the world's unfairness. So, today we have an invitation to consider where, what, what um, model you have in your relationship with God. How does your relationship with God work? Put in a little money, you do a little work, and God provides for you. If you have a gumball machine kind of faith, I can guarantee you, you might do okay. You might squeak, you might get by your 20s. You may even possibly squeak through into your 30s. But pretty soon after that, you're going to meet a trouble that's going to expose what you believe. And the gumball machine way of working is going to turn out to be not enough. And so today's an invitation to a deeper connection with God. Consider that if you knew that your God, your loving, gracious, saving, redeeming, wonderful God, took the path of senseless suffering himself, if then maybe you can find hope towards the words of Job, that he says in the first chapter, we didn't get to read. But I do want to end with these, these wonderful words. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Can you hold to a praiseworthy God who has reasons for things that may always remain beyond you and beyond your ability to understand? Let us pray. Our God of grace. If we have great problems with you and with how you handle things in our life or in this world, we ask and appeal to you, not necessarily that you would explain everything away, but that you would show us your goodness and your grace. And that by your Holy Spirit, no matter the hurdle, no matter the mountain, we might trust in your goodness. And as we continue to journey through the hard words of the book of Job, I pray for this community that you would give us grace and understanding and wisdom to wrestle with this together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.